how's working from home been going for you? Remarkably Remote from GoToMeeting will help you succeed in today's new normal. In just three minutes or less, we'll share simple but helpful tips to keep you on track. From managing your motivation, workload, and relationships, to hosting and attending virtual events that keep you connected with your clients and colleagues. So check out Remarkably Remote on your favorite podcasting platform, or head to gotomeeting.com slash tips. and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I am Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Ayer. And we have a really fun episode on tap for you guys today. We have been uh, planning it for about a week now, so hopefully we've had enough time to prepare. This is going to be our trivia episode. We've both prepared questions for each other uh, in three different categories. Prashant, how are you feeling about uh, the competition to come? Well, uh, given that I've got five years on you by age and can maybe remember the late 90s a little bit better, I've got a little bit of confidence. I feel like i got a little bit of an edge here, but, you know, we'll, we'll see uh, what you've dug out, Max. Yeah, I was worried about that the whole way. I was thinking the whole time about how many times I've had to ask you on the air who someone was that we were talking about or what the significance <laughs> of them was. So I did a lot of research, though. I spent uh, I had a day off yesterday, and I spent a good amount of it working on these questions because uh, I really do love to win. So hopefully uh, hopefully that there's something good in my favor here. All right. Well, uh, you know, you took the day off to prepare. I worked until 10 p.m., so let's see what happens. Yeah, I would say, I mean, look, I have to have some advantage here. Like, it, you know, it's just the way it's going. I need to balance the scale somehow, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. All right. That'll uh, maybe make up for the five-year age difference then. So uh, let's see what that's you right. got. All right. Uh, so the first category we're going to do is the draft. Uh, do you want to ask first or answer first? Uh, you know, I think I'll ask you first. And I think just okay. to lay it out so everyone knows how we're going to score this here to make sure Max doesn't cheat at the end after uh, everything is all <laughs> said and done. So every, every question is worth... above it. You know, every question is worth one point. Um, what we've decided is some of the questions we've created for each other have multiple answers. And so if someone were to get all of the answers correct, they would get two points. If they get a partial answer, they still get one point. And then prior to the start of a category, so we've, uh, we've created three categories here. We've got the draft, who am I, and we've got championship teams prior to the start of a category uh, either Max or I can call that we want to double the point value for all of the answers, uh, meaning that we will get twice as much for everything in that category. However, we do have to call it before the category starts. So I guess with that being said, Max, I'm happy to uh, ask first, but would you like to double on the draft? Uh, that is the category I would like to double on. And I would like to propose one other rule here before we actually begin. So one of my questions, like the first question I have is going to ask you to name six of something. Um, and I would like to make it so that when you have something like that, any any that's over four, can we get one wrong answer we're allowed to give in the set? So like if I ask you to give six answers, you can get one wrong. You basically get seven chances to name six kind of thing. All right. 
I'll, uh, I'll allow it. Okay, cool. All right. Then, yes, I will answer first. And I will All double. All right. All right. Max is doubling. So, you know, I, I started to go at this in sort of a Jeopardy format where there's a little bit of an escalating difficulty. Again, it felt like, you know, I wanted you to get a little bit of momentum here. So here's here's the nice softball that I've come up with. So uh, the last time the Red Wings selected in the top five, who did they draft? The last time they selected in the top five, they drafted Keith Primo. That is correct. 1993rd overall. Excellent. One point. All right. Well, two points for you, right? You doubled up. Oh, yes. Let's go. All right. You're off to a good start. So you want me to move on to my next question here then? Yes. All right. Well, uh, so the first round picks here, they get all the hype. So who's the last player the Red Wings drafted in the seventh round that actually made it to the NHL? The seventh round. Okay, so yeah. N was the fourth or the fifth. Uh, Nyquist, Athanasiu, same range. Uh, the seventh round. Boy. Was it Henrik Zetterberg? It was not. It was Alexei Marchenko, defenseman ah, out of Russia. Took him in right. 2011 at 205th overall. Serviceable defenseman, but not Henrik Zetterberg. He, I think he would have been next if he went further back. So, Marchenko is in my uh, my Red Wings blind spot where I have like a window there in the early 2010s where I was not paying any attention to them. Max, I would like you to know that I specifically catered my questions to the early 2010s <laughs> to make sure I maintained my advantage here. All right. All right. So then, question three, escalating in some difficulty here. So with Yaroslav Askarov potentially going in the top 10 this year, yep. who is the only goaltender the Red Wings have taken in the top 10 in their draft? I have this as a question, too. It's Jim Rutherford. It is Jim Rutherford. In 1969, the Wings took him 10th overall. It's a fun little question. Has Jim Rutherford still been GMing his way around the NHL here? All right, I'll have to change mine on the fly. (laughs) That's fair. Uh, It's nice. I got to knock out one of your questions. I gave you two points, though. Yep. All right. So next up, and wording uh, carefully here, this is a multi-part answer. So the Red Wings have drafted five players who have gone on to play more than 1,000 games for the Red Wings. Mm. Name those five players. Nicholas Littstrom, Steve Iserman. Okay. Sillinger didn't do it for the Red Wings. Fedorov, I don't think, got to 1,000 for the Red Wings. I think he was still in the 900s. Zetterberg got to a thousand, I believe. Are you locking that one in, or you you're you're thinking about it? He might not have. No, he did. He didn't get to a thousand points, but he got to a thousand games, right? Yes, I'm locking that in. Okay. <sighs> thousand games. This is really hard. Um. Well, I told you they were going to escalate in difficulty. I had to give you a couple softies in there. It feels like Datsuk would not be a correct answer because he left early, but I can't resist guessing him because he did have, like, you know, he played at least, like, 12 seasons. That's theoretically close to enough. I'll say Datsuk. 
Even that though I think it's incorrect. Oh, Nick Cronwall. That is also incorrect. Fuck. And you are. All right, so I'm not out. getting it. I'm getting the partial answer either way. So Chris Draper, one thousand one hundred and did not was not drafted by the Red Wings. Sorry, not Draper. Um, Thomas Holmstrom is the other one. Okay, so sorry, yep, that's a good four, one. not five. Yep. So Thomas Holmstrom. So you will get your partial point here. One yep, round. All right. So so who did I get right? You got uh, Nick Zetterberg, Lichtrum, Steve Eiserman, Eiserman and Henrik Bridgestone. Zetterberg. Yep. Datsuk played, I believe, nine hundred and fifty-eight games. So oh, he was just shy. Yeah. Nick Cronwall was also just shy. Um, but Thomas Holmstrom is the fourth one in there at 1,026 games played. So. All right. That's a good question. All right, I'll take my so, partial credit. All right, well, here's another one. That was one a big opportunity. That, that would have been a four-pointer. That would have been. You had the shot there. You had the shot. All right, so here's the last question for you. It's also a multi-part question here. So the Red Wings have drafted five players 200th or later who have gone on to play more than 400 games played. Mm-hmm. Name those players. Datsuk and Zetterberg. Incorrect on Datsuk. He was not 200th or later. When is 200? I guess that's the seventh round, huh? That is the seventh round. So Datsuk is sixth round. All right, so Jonathan Erickson and Henrik Zetterberg. Oh, shit. There was someone who they took in, like, the eighth round. Uh, was Konstantinov that late? Are you asking me or are you telling me? This is my favorite question That's, for my learners. I'm, sub- I'm submitting a guess. All right. So, Konstantinov, 221st. Okay, excellent. <sighs> 200s. Did I say Jonathan Erickson? You already said Jonathan Erickson. So I've got three of them? You've got three. I need one more. Two more. Two more. That might be all I got. All right. Well, uh, I'll uh, pass along to Thomas Holmstrom that you really disrespect him because he was 257. So back-to-back <laughs> questions. Where he was drafted missed. higher. I just thought he was drafted higher. That's not disrespecting him. 257th. And then the one I knew you were Was he the eighth-round guy? He was 10th. So okay. back in uh, back in the day when you had more than uh, seven rounds, as we've got now, Thomas Holmstrom went tenth round, two hundred fifty seventh overall in nineteen ninety four, and then last but not least is Dan McGillis, who went two hundred thirty eighth in nineteen ninety two. So I believe he's your eighth round guy that you were thinking about. So close enough. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll take the two points there. I think I end that round with what eight. I think so. Eight sounds about right. You got two for uh, for Primo. You missed on Marchenko. You got two for Rutherford. You got two for uh, um, the five players with more than a thousand game played, and then two for uh, getting a partial answer right on this last one. So eight points, not a bad round. Yep, I can deal with that. All right. So I guess uh, tables are turned back on me here. Yep. You want to double or you want to uh, just play this one out? I'm going to play this one out. Okay. All right. Uh, We'll start. I think this one does start fairly easy. Um, The Red Wings 1989 draft class is widely regarded as the greatest in NHL history with two Hall of Famers headlining a class that saw six players log at least 400 NHL games. Name them. The six. Uh, The six players. All right. So you've got Fedorov. You've got Lidstrom. You've got Mike Sillinger. You've got, um, let me see here. 
Oh, I always forget this grinder that somehow managed to make it. Uh, Dallas Drake. Um, yeah. That's the tough right. one. That's the one I always remember. Now I got to remember the others here. Um, 1989. Let's see. And you said it was uh, 600 games played? 400. 400 games played. Konstantinov was 1989. So that's, that's right. Five. You got two more guesses to get the last one. Let's see here. I am blanking on the last one. Yeah. I'm tapping out. Yep, I'm calling it. Bob Bugner. Ah, that's that's the one I was trying to think of when I was thinking of Dallas Drake. Yep. Yep. All right. Well I'll take Bugner my drafted above Lidstrom and Fedorov. Yes, that's also important to know that Bob Bugner went above those guys. All right. Um how many times have the Red Wings picked well, we can do this one of two ways. I'll I'll either give it to you the one point answer option, which is how many times have the Red Wings picked in the top four in the history of the draft, or you can opt to name half of the players selected in those top four spots, which would be a two point answer, but obviously a more difficult question. Ooh, let's see. Um, well, let's go for let's go for name half the players selected in the top. Call. You said top four. Yep. Because that's the floor of where they can pick this year. Was my, right. my so, news pick uh, to that? <laughs> all right. Well, let's see. Let's do these in, in order, if I can. So, nineteen ninety is Keith Primo. Correct. Then nineteen eighty three is Steve Eiserman. Correct. Um, let's see how far back I can go here. Um, draft starts in nineteen sixty three. There's, There's one nothing. of these that I had no idea, and like it blew my mind. These might be the only two that I can think of off the top of my head here. There's a pretty famous one where, um, well, I'm not going to say anymore. <laughs> There's a pretty famous one where, uh, no, I think these are uh, the only two I've got, unless Adam Oates is one, but I don't think he is. Oates is not. Uh, Joe Murphy and Dale McCourt were both number one That's right. overalls. Joe Murphy I should have got. Uh, Pete Mahovlich. All right. Claude Gauthier. Fred right. Williams. George Forgy. Mike Felino, And the one that I had no idea about, Marcel Dion. Yeah. Yeah, I actually forget that Dion went, uh, what was he? Was he third or is he fourth? He might have been first. Uh... Number two overall, 1971. Two. All right. So, yeah. all right. Well, at least by going that route, I get a partial point there, yeah. right? Yep. You get all a point. Right. Yep. All right. I'll take it. All right. Um, so you you got the you, you knocked this one out when you asked it to me. What is the next highest pick after tenth overall that the Red Wings have selected a goalie? So Jim Rutherford went tenth overall. What's the next highest pick? And I know you love your your goalie drafting. I want to say it's 20, it's 24th, maybe? I but thought I, that was the answer. I remember that pick as well. But the answer is actually 11th overall. They drafted Terry Richardson in 1973. Huh. There's One another goalie later. that they take in the 60s that was technically the fourth round that was like in the 20s. And then more recently, the one I almost asked you was was Tom McCollum in 2008 at 30th overall. Yep. That's the one the wings won't live down. But, yep. all right. 
No, I thought, I thought it was 24th as well, but it is 11th. Swing and a miss. All right. Max, you stepped out. You brought your A game on these. I mean, it would have been easier for you if you hadn't asked me the same question. That is true. That is true. I could have gone through a backup there. All right. Here's one of my favorite questions. Um, and I, I think, I mean, you'll, you'll get part of it. You'll get partial for sure. But five current, uh, sorry. Yes. Five current members of the Red Wings NHL Hockey Operations Department were drafted by the franchise as players. Name them. You get six guesses. And hockey ops would include executives, coaches, and scouts. Okay. So Steve Eiserman. Correct. Uh, partial. <laughs> um, Yuri Fisher. Correct. Uh, let's see. Malty was Edmonton. Draper was Winnipeg. Was, uh, yeah, it was Winnipeg. Um, let's see here. I believe Devilano was back in the day, right? Mm, I don't think he was ever drafted. Oh, that's Not right. He, pre- he would have predated the draft. Um, let's see here. I think that might be... Let's see. You said there was. You got six. more. You got more in you. There's five. You get. You get six guesses. You got more in you. I know you do. I mean, Nick. Nick Cronwall technically. Right. I don't know if he counts. Yes. All right. that and he I mean, counts, Lidstrom yep. obviously does stuff in Europe too for the organization. Although I don't know that he's a former. I don't have position. him in the hockey ops department. Okay. But you got two more. Say. These are the hard two. But one of them, if you're watching the games, you're seeing him. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that I got him. I don't know. All right. Doug Huda in the second round in 1984. Now an assistant right. coach. Defenseman, and yeah. Jesse Wallin, who was newly hired chief scout for the That's Red right. Wings, was a first-round pick in 96. I remember Jesse Wallin quite well. Uh, yeah. Completely forgot that he was brought back as a scout. So, all right. Yeah. Good questions, go. Max. Those are some challenging ones. All right, and here is a riddle. Because <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't help uh, yourself. That's right. Uh, one of the Red Wings' late-round draft picks in 1990 never made the NHL, but still managed to take the ice for more than a thousand games. Who was he? You said it was specifically 1990. Yes, but don't Google it. I mean, I'm not googling it. Uh, <laughs> let's see, 1990 never managed to play a game. You said, but managed. He to never play made a- the NHL, but was. But took the ice for a thousand NHL games. Oh, that's a fun riddle. I mean, I guess I would have for a thousand NHL games. You yes. Said. Huh. Uh, you know, I don't know. 1990. Couldn't tell you. He went to Michigan State. He was a defenseman. All right. Are you I going. Said... Oh, I Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I don't know. He got me beat here, Max. You don't want to try and work it out? I don't know that I could. How would someone take the ice for a thousand NHL games without playing in the NHL? I mean, unless you're going for a Zamboni driver, right? Nope. You're close. <laughs> yeah, and I, I got nothing. It's Wes McCauley, the referee. was an eighth-round pick of the Red Wings in 1990, the referee. Huh. So, Max, you really went all out. That day off really <laughs> helped you here. I was thinking, I was like, all right, I need to like make this, you know, relatively straightforward for Max. You know, I'm thinking I might have to like reach into the bag of tricks. So that was one where when I wrote it, I was like, I probably think this is the most clever shit. And then I'm going to ask it. And he's going to be like, yeah, Wes McCauley, everyone knows that. They talked about <laughs> it on broadcasts for like the first 15 years of his career or something like that. that. 
You know, to be quite honest, I don't remember them bringing that up on broadcast in a while because I don't know that, you know, he's refed a ton of Wings games. Right. Uh, at least recently. So, I, you know, it's a, the memory fades as you get older here. I guess I'm losing it in my old age. So the hint I almost gave was, uh, what if I said he w- he is known to award players five minutes for fighting? Yeah, that might have done it. <laughs> <laughs> That's him, right? He's the one who does the really theatrical yeah. calls. Yeah, really theatrical. Yeah, yeah, I love it. All right, um, moving on to the championship teams round. All right, so championship teams. So these are all questions relating to players uh, or specific teams that have won a championship for the Detroit Red Wings. So let's start with question one: a nice softball. A playoff run was destined to end in the Stanley Cup if I scored a goal from center ice. Because it happened twice. Name the player and the instances. Well, it's not Dougie Hamilton. Read the question again. So a playoff run was destined to end in a Stanley Cup if I scored a goal from center ice during the playoff run because it happened twice. Name the player and name the situations. Jesus. This is the softball, by the way. I don't know this at all. Um, is it Iserman? Didn't he have like a really long distance goal against the Blues or something like that? That was right outside the blue line. And that one, oh, Game okay. 7, 1996, uh, oh, Western Conference the Semifinals. So that was not a Stanley Cup winning all team. Right. I'll take the L. All right. It's Nick Lidstrom. And it's okay. 2002, Game 3 versus Vancouver. The Wings were down 2-0 in that series, and Nick Lidstrom scores from center ice on Dan Cloutier, and the Wings win the next four games. Wow. And then it's 2008 versus Nashville. Lidstrom actually scores from his own blue line on Dan Ellis when the series was tied 2-2 in Nashville. Uh, and actually, actually, I believe this one's game six, so this is actually... Um, the game where the Wings defeated the Predators. So I should have known that. That was in my lifetime. Yeah. Nick Lidstrom scores from center ice. The Wings are going to win the Stanley Cup. Happens All right. twice. All right, Max. So here's another one that you should know from your, your extensive research, which it sounds like you, you did on your day off here. <laughs> so question two is another multi-parter. In 2001-2002, the Red Wings were sometimes carried by the two kids and an old goat line. Name the members of this line. Fuck, I should know this too. Well, one of them's gotta be Datsuk. Is that an answer? Uh, No, it's not. I'm just working this out in my head. (laughs) Who would be the old goat in 2002? You've got about 13 to choose from. Yeah. I want to say it would be Larry Anov. He seems very, like, the perfect player to play young players with. I don't think Zetterberg dressed in the 2002 Stanley Cup. I think he signed and was brought in to be around the team, but was not an active player for that cup, if my memory holds. I don't know how that would apply to Datsuk. I don't know sequentially when they came in. I do remember that I had an NHL video game in which 
I don't think either of those two were very good from those days, which tells me that maybe they were rookies at the time or or shortly or like very young players. Um, two kids, though. Like, that would have to be them. One of them. Not Zetterberg. Larianov, Datsuk. Who else would be a kid? Is it is it partial credit if I just get one of these right? Or do I have to get the whole line? I think it's partial credit if you get one okay. of them. But I haven't yet. <laughs> well, you know, I'll tell you once you finish your answer here, Max. It's like Jeopardy, but you get six minutes to answer. Yeah, no, I, I've taken too much time. I'm going to lock in <laughs> Datsuk and Larianov and hope one of them was on that line. So Datsuk was. Okay, excellent. It was Pavel Datsuk, Boyd Devereaux, and okay. Brett Hall. Oh, he's the old goat. Okay. And so then in 2002-2003, Devereaux drops and Zetterberg joins. And so okay. it's now Datsuk, Zetterberg, and Hull. How but about that? That's a line. <laughs> that's a line right there for you. Why do you think Brett Hull still scored 40 goals in a one Yeah, no kidding. Because no you kidding. got to play with Datsuk as your centerman. Uh, there's a great YouTube video, if anyone has not seen it, of Brett Hull talking about Datsuk as literally the most talented player he's ever you know, played with. And, and remember, Brett Hull had, was centered by Gretzky, was centered by Adam Oates, and he's talking about Datsuk as, as the most talented player he's been playing with, and you're, you're just kind of marveling at his skill level. So fun line, have fond memories of that line. All right, Max, off to a tough start here. Only one point out of the uh, first two questions. Yep, I can I can live with it. Let's, let's keep it going. All right, question three here, though. Red Wings have three players who scored their only career hat trick in the playoffs on a Stanley Cup championship run. Name those players. Darren McCarty. All right. Three players who scored their only career hat trick. As in, they only had one, or when they, whenever they had them, they were in the playoffs? They had one career hat trick, and that career hat trick happened in the playoffs on a Stanley Cup team. With that said, do you feel like you need to change your first answer? Yeah, because I think McCarty has had other hat tricks. These are really good. So it's got one of them's got to be a defenseman. Um who is capable of scoring a hat trick? Should I make this more fun for you, Max? Why not? None of them are a defenseman. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Let's go then. Similar mold to McCarty, but uh, Kirk Malpy. Um... Joe Koser and Yuri Hoodler. Should have stuck with McCarty. That oh, was only no! career hat trick. Uh, game one, 2002 Western Conference Finals versus Colorado. That is his you only career hat trick. You into that. 100% well, I, baited I me. had to ask you again just to make sure. <laughs> so, you know, I baited you out of it. You would have never gotten the second one. But it was your answer to the last question. It's Pavel Datsuk. That's his really? only career hat trick is game three of the 2008 Western Conference Finals versus Dallas. Never scored a hat trick in the regular season. Just scored that hat trick. So I cost uh, myself Dallas. partial credit. 
And then no. the one I didn't think you were going to get was Don Grasso in Game 3 of the 1943 Stanley Cup Finals versus Boston. Yeah, None happened. of them are defensemen. They're all forwards. And two of them have happened in the last 20 years. So, all right, McCarty, So, I, I know McCarty had that hat trick, but, but I just thought... I, for some reason, I thought he'd had, like, a few in the playoffs. Like, I had him kind of pegged in my head as a guy who... Like just would come alive. I mean, I think that still kind of is true. Like he was a pretty good scorer. In the he came alive games. against Patrick Waugh. You know, my favorite yeah. stat is uh, of his twenty career playoff goals, eleven of them are against Patrick Waugh. So, um, but he he only has the one hat trick, at least per per Hockey References uh, database of hat tricks. It is just the one against Colorado. That's a great great question. All right, on to the next one. All right, next one. This one probably was a little bit easier, but I could, uh, I, I'll move it down here to four. So often forgotten about when talking about the greatest teams of all time, this team won the Stanley Cup without dropping a single game and outscored their opponents by a margin of 24 to 5. The 1954-55 Red Wings. Close, but it is the 51-52 Red Wings. Mm. They swept Toronto, beating them 3-0, 1-0, 6-2, 3-1, and then swept Montreal 3-1, 2-1, 3-0, 3-0. Four shutouts and eight playoff games. Absolutely unreal. It's all, it's all falling apart here in round two. Well, you know, we just had to get to the money category, which is championship teams. So, all right, last question. Stepped it up in difficulty a little bit for you i feel so. like i feel like here's like, like the sabotage of like I, for as long as i've covered the red wings i've had to care a lot more about the draft than championships well so here here's the thing my strategy behind this was the draft that's kind of the uh, the one where i know there's only a finite number of things you can really consider here so i'll let you have those points but we're going to bring out the actual questions on on who am i in the championship team so all right Question. Who am I? Round is so easy. I'm going to get murdered in this. Well, thanks. You know, I haven't doubled up yet, so now I know where to go. <laughs> All right. So, question five. Um, one of my favorite questions here. Who are the only two players in Red Wings history to win the Stanley Cup with a game seven overtime game winning goal? Oh, but it's got to be game seven. Game seven, Stanley Cup finals, overtime. Game-winning goal. So I'm trying to think which ones actually went to Game 7. 08 didn't. I don't think 02 did. Uh, 97 and 98 didn't. So I think we're back to the 53, 54, and 54, 55 teams. They both needed seven games, I want to say. But I don't know. Um, Gordy Howe, one of them. He is not. Mm, Alex Delvecchio. He is also not. Okay, lay it on me. Yeah, you weren't gonna get these if you didn't get the other ones. So the first one is Pete Babando in 1949-1950 scored 831 into double overtime against the Rangers to win the Stanley Cup. And then Tony Leswick in 1953-1954 scores 429 into the first overtime against Montreal. 
Thought it'd be one of the heavy hitters. So 54-55. You did. 54-55 did go seven games against Montreal. The game did not go to overtime. Oh, okay. All right. Max walks away with one point from the championship teams. Rough. I am technically, though. I'm still up by six points, I think. So even if you get all of them in this round, uh, I'll be ahead. Unless you double. That's fair. All right, I am not. I am not going to double here because I told you my who am I? You already, yeah. I mean, I was thinking uh, about championship teams, but you, you you let it slip, so you got to play right. the game here. All right, so championship teams. All right, the two thousand and one oh two Red Wings had one of the greatest greatest championship seasons of the modern era, headlined by nine Hall of Famers. Who was the team's leading scorer, and how many points did he have in eighty games? Uh, I believe. Brendan Shanahan, I think, scored 87 points. Okay, so you get one of them there. Uh, he had 75 points. Less than a point per game. I couldn't believe that that yeah. team with that many Hall of Famers had less than a point per game. Uh, close enough. I'll take my point. Okay. Uh, Detroit acquired Shanahan early in the 96-97 season in a trade with the Hartford Whalers. Name the three assets the Red Wings sent Hartford's way in exchange for Shanahan. Uh Ray Shepard, Keith Primo, and Ugh, I'm blanking on the third one. I don't got the third one. It was Paul Coffey, Keith Primo, and a first-round pick. Ah, that's right. Shepard wasn't in that deal. Coffey. All right. All right. So get your point. I'll take my point. Uh, this one, <laughs> this is kind of my trick question here. Chris Draper was famously acquired for a dollar in a trade with the Winnipeg Jets in 1993. In 1993, how much did a loaf of bread cost? You, you can get within 10% of the answer. I'm not going to hold you down to the pennies. 1993, how much did a loaf of bread cost? Uh, let's go with uh, a buck 33. Oh, you're so close. A dollar 57. So you, you do not get that correct, which I'm very <laughs> grateful for. I can't believe Amazing. that he was acquired for less than the cost of a loaf of bread. Well, so the, the best the best thing about it was the whole thing was future considerations in the deal. Right. And, and it wasn't really named. And it never was publicly said. And I don't know if you know the story behind it, Max, but Draper actually, he learned about it from a reporter who basically in a scrum told him that he was traded for a dollar and he didn't believe it and actually went back to management and said, wait, was I really traded for a dollar? And they're like, yeah, I mean, that's what it was. So the, it was always labeled as future the motivation. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was always labeled as future considerations, and and no one really ever publicly said what it was until I guess or you know management effectively said, yeah, we'll take the dollar, and then you know the it got down to the reporters, and the reporter mentioned it because the reporter basically offhand said, not bad for a guy acquired for a dollar. And Chris kind of stops him and goes, wait, what? Um, so it's a fun story. I think it's on, uh, if you listen to Darren McCarty's Grind Time podcast, I believe there's an episode he does with, with Draper where he talks about that story. So it's a, it's a really good one to listen to. I like this. I asked the trivia question, and then I actually get to learn something. It's great. Yeah, i got to give you all the background to it. So Yeah, I love it. All right. Um, eight Hall of Famers played at some point on each of the Red Wings teams that won consecutive Stanley Cups over the Montreal Canadiens in seven-game series in 1953-54 and 54-55. Only six of them had their names on the Stanley Cup for both of those championships. I'll give you the options. Do you want to name all six? 
or do you want to name the three Hall of Famers who were on those teams in some capacity who either did not have their names on either cup or only had their name on one? So wait, repeat the question here. This sounds a little convoluted. Yeah, most of them are. Uh, There were eight (laughs) Hall of Famers on each of the Red Wings Stanley Cup teams in 54 and 55. Eight. But only six were on both of those, had their names on both of those Stanley Cups. So I will give you the option to name the six players who did have their name on both Stanley Cups, or I'll give you the option to name one of the other three Hall of Famers who was on one of those teams but did not get his name on both Stanley Cups. Um, let's see here. Let's go with naming the six that were on both. Okay. All right. So, Gordy Howe. Yep. Ted Lindsay. Yep. Uh, let's go with Sid Abel. Nope. Yeah, so that's your wrong one that you can All right. get. All right. Well, then I'll go Alex Del Vecchio. Correct. Um, Terry Sawchuk. Correct. Um, so let's see. I've got four now. You got four of them. You got two more. Um, let's go with... Uh, I can't remember if Glenn Hall was on the team yet or not. Um, Red Kelly? Yep. All right, I've got five. Let's see. Last one on those teams. I don't know. I'll take a shot in the dark with Glenn Hall. I don't think he was on both of them, though. He was. He was on one of them. Our, so he, he he would have been your answer for the alternative. All right. Um, but you still get the partial credit. The correct answer we were looking for, the one you were missing, was Anthony Mantha's grandfather, Marcel Protovost. Ah, Close enough. Yep. I was uh, I was trying to think if it was another defenseman or another forward, and I don't know. It's close, but all right, I'll take so it. So the I mean, ones you were missing were Glenn Hall, Keith Allen, and Al Arbor, the great coach, was on that. Yeah, team. there was no way I was going to get the ones that weren't um, off the right. top of my head, so I had to get the ones that were. Yeah. All right, no, I'll say good. five or six there. Okay. Yep. All right, and then the last one, Gordy Howe was part of 20 playoff runs in his NHL career, winning four Stanley Cups and registering more than a point per game for his whole playoff career. However, in his four Stanley Cup runs, he only managed to average a point per game in one of those playoffs. How many points did he have in the 11 games that postseason? And I'll give you two points if you can get the year two. Okay, so... I believe he had 20 points. That's correct. Because he had, this is the year he had nine goals uh, and 20 points. And I want to say it's 54-55. That's correct. I shouldn't have given you the choice to get two. (laughs) It's all right. You know what? This one's, uh, I love my Gordie Howe trivia. So, yeah, I mean, I'll give you his whole stat line. I think it was nine goals, 11 points, or 11 assists. 20 points, 11 games played. He had a... How, uh, how close? Is it tied now? That might have just uh, tied the game. I might be an idiot. I think I got five. Okay, so I'm still up by one. So I'll leave you one, but I've got the option to double up my next round. So That's true. All right. 
Good All job, right, Max. That's a that's a fun one, but I love my championship team. So you ready for your Who Am I's? Yes. I don't know that I went super wild with these, but uh, you know we will see. So the Who Am I's? Just to preface this, uh, the way I design my questions is there are questions about players that are either current or former Red Wings. Um, you know, so I, I did try to give you a little bit of a mix to you know appeal to your your youthfulness here. So let's start with uh, question one. And again, these are escalating in difficulty. So question one, I hold a couple of Red Wings records, including the most goals scored in a single playoff series, the most points in a single playoff game, and I am one of two Red Wings players to score five goals in a game. Uh, You are Johan Franzen. That is correct. Nine goals in four games against the Avs. Uh, six points against San Jose in 2010, five goals against Ottawa in 2011. Who, uh, you know, Max? Just uh, I'm not giving you any bonus points here, but who's the other Red Wing with five goals in a game? No idea. Sergey Fedorov. Oh, uh, okay. Five goals in 1996. All right, all right. First point for Max. I got to make these a little bit harder. All right, so. At the peak of my powers, which was a three-year stretch, I finished in the top 10 in Selkie voting three times. I won the Selkie once, was selected to play for Team Canada at the Olympics, and even received an MVP vote. Who am I? Wow. Votes for the Selkie in three seasons but didn't win it? No, won it once. Once was top 10 in Selkie voting in three seasons, won it once. This is three consecutive seasons. Uh, Was also selected to play for Team Canada at the Olympics and received a vote for MVP. See, the Canada Olympic one is what's throwing me because that makes me feel like I really should know it. So running through this, it's not Fedorov because he's Russian. And he won it multiple times. I like how you got that off the bat. <laughs> I also would like to make it known that Datsuk is also Russian. And Do you want to you want to weigh in on Larianov as well? He is not. Uh, he is Russian. <laughs> He's not Canadian. Um, oh, geez. Okay, Iserman would have made Team Canada more than once, and one had to have won MVPs. Um, so it can't be him. Same for Gordy Howe. Canadian at the height of my powers. I feel like this is going to be one of like the guys from like the 50s that you'll occasionally tell me about. And it might be the guy who we just talked about the other day because he might be testing me. But I don't know if the Selkie existed at that time. All right, what you got, Max? Uh... I don't know if I got anything. <laughs> Remember, this is, is question it... two. I know. Are you Pete Mahovlich? You are not. Fuck. You are Chris Draper. Oh, I should have got that. So Draper wins the Selkie in 2003-2004. He's sixth in 05-06. He's eighth in 06-07. He plays for Team Canada in 2006. 
And he got an MVP vote in 2003-2004. The MVP vote derailed me on that. I was thinking of of more like goal scorers who would have had a couple of really good defensive seasons. He got one singular MVP vote, but he got a vote for MVP in 2003-2004. Oh, that's such a good one. Damn it. It's, uh, you know why? Well, I, I, if I had to ask you a question, I can't just say who's traded for a dollar. That's the easy one. I got to no, give I know, you. I know. I, I got to give you the challenging part here to get him. Yeah. No, that's great. That's a great one. All right. So um, this is question number three. So while uh, so basically over the last thirty years, I hold the record for the most points scored in a single game with eight. Most points scored in a single game? With eight. Read the first part of the question again. So, over the last 30 years, I hold the record for the most points scored in a single game with eight. Did I do it as a Red Wing? You did not do it as a Red Wing. Sam Gagne. That is correct. Sam Gagne, four goals, four assists, eight points against Chicago, most points scored in a game since Mario Lemieux in 1988. All right. Good work there, Max. I figured I uh, would trip you up a little bit with your uh, early 2010 knowledge, but you, you managed I to stash that away. That. I, I vaguely remember from when they traded for Gagne stumbling across the fact that he had like a crazy game. Like I know, and I couldn't I couldn't mention any of the OHL stats because, you know, from all the times that I've talked about right, how exactly. he's on that list... You were going to get that. So, all right. Fair enough. There's a point, another point for Max. So, uh, two points so far. All right. Going to have to step up some difficulty here. All right. So, as a rookie, I scored a goal at 16.30 of the sixth overtime to end the longest playoff game in NHL history. Who am I? As a rookie. This might be Mickey Redmond. Because I remember him telling me a story about like how he was a rookie and he was just basically opening the door and the coach basically put him out there because everyone else was just so tired. And I think he scored. Was it Mickey Redmond? It is not. It's oh. actually Mud Brunito in oh, 1936. No <laughs> he actually was called up to the Red Wings two weeks prior, was still trying to figure out how to play. They're playing the Montreal Maroons. And he scores at 16.30 of the sixth overtime. So they basically played 116 and a half minutes of overtime. And he scores then. It's the first. It's game one of the series. So uh, It's games one through three. Yeah, basically. So Mud Brunito, answer to one of my favorite trivia questions of the longest overtime game. That's a good one. All right. Last but not least. A number of great goalies have played for the Detroit Red Wings. Out of all of them, I hold the record for the best save percentage in a single season with a minimum of 25 games played. Oh, God, I feel like I'm being trapped. (laughs) You should always think it's a trap. Dominic Hasek? That is not correct. It is... Glenn Hall. Okay. And that's 1956 why you knew him for, for and the... 1957. Well, that's I knew him also because... That's amazing for that era, by the way. Yeah. For that era right. to have a save percentage like that. That's exactly right. So per hockey reference, they have a save percentage listed at 928, 
Max, would you like to know who the runner-up is? Sure. Jimmy Howard, 927. Wow. So That's great. That is great. So in 2016-2017, Jimmy Howard had a 927 save percentage. So uh, either way, that would have been a fun one to, to get if I could have had it as him. The best part about all of this is Jack Adams, the Red Wings uh, general manager at the time, traded Glenn Hall after this season. So... Um, and this was right after the year prior, he traded Terry Sawchuk after winning the Vezina and the Stanley Cup. So, uh, Trader Jack, as he was uh, known. There you go. All right. All right, so you're at uh, 8. I'm at 11. And I'm doubling up here. So you only need to get two of mine correct to take the title. That is correct. All right. Are you let's ready? See, let's see if I can do it. All right. Other than Larry Ori, I am the only Red Wing to ever wear number six because he was my cousin. Oh, shoot. I should know this. Number six. Oh, I don't know why I'm blanking on this. I am not. No matter how long I think about this, I don't think I'm going to pull it out. What you got, yeah, I don't Max? think you are either. Cummy Burton? That's a name that, honestly, they used to bring up on the broadcast when they would talk about retiring Larry Ory's jersey, but right. no, that is one I do not have in me. All right. Um, I may have garnered most of my fame for another team, but I'm a Hall of Famer drafted by the Red Wings who remains the franchise's all-time points-per-game leader to this day at 1.18. And that's w- points with the Red Wings. That's points with the Red Wings, 1.18. Yep. And he said garnered most of his fame for other teams. All right. Let's see here. That's a good question, Max. Uh, and I sh- I'll say it wasn't other teams. It was one other team is where, where he's most famous for. All right. Let me throw, well, I don't know, a random one like a Pete Mahalovich. No. No. Who you got? That is Marcel Dion. We've talked about him Marcel in this, uh, in this show. Yeah, I just didn't. I didn't think of him in his first four years yeah. with the Red Wings that he uh, he was that, he did he was that, that dynamite. Still, I can't All believe right. they would let him go at that point. Like a guy, you, you draft a guy second overall. He puts up one point one eight points per game, and it's like, and you yeah. just had to deal him. Yeah, right. Fair enough. <laughs> All right, time to come up clutch. You need two of the last three. All right, let's see what I got. I don't have as many career goals as Luke Robitaille, who shared my number with the Red Wings. But I did have back-to-back 50-goal seasons, and I'm still the franchise leader in goals per game. A little bingo-bango Mickey Redman here. Nailed it. Yeah, it's number 20. All right, moment of truth. Like many of my teammates on the Red Wing Stanley Cup teams of the late 90s and 2000s, I was drafted in 1989 in the third round. Who am I? Uh, third round should be Nick Lidstrom. Sorry. Like many of my Red Wings teammates, I was drafted in the late 90s and two, or I was drafted in 89 in the third round, uh, but not for the Red Wings. I'll clarify oh. that and give you a second chance. <laughs> it was like, I mean, that's Nick Lidstrom. Yeah. All right, so drafted in the third round, um, but played for the late 90s, early 2000s Red Wings. Is what, that's what you're yes. saying with your question? Yeah, that's kind of the hint, because I don't want to just ask you. I was drafted in the third round in 89. So he All was right. a Red Wing of those teams. He was in that same draft in that same round as Lidstrom. Yeah. Uh, 
I want to say it's Kirk Malty. Do you want to say it, or are you saying it? I mean, I, I'm going to say it. I think he was drafted third round by Edmonton in 89. Let me see if that's true, because it might be. I don't actually know. I'm, I'm spitting here. It's it's not the answer that I have down, but it, if it's true, I guess I should probably give you the credit, right? <laughs> it is not true. All right. Uh, Kirk Mulpey was not. The answer is Chris Draper. Oof. Swing and a miss. All right. All right. So it's all down to this. I'm up by one point. You can get two points for getting this correct. Got it. All right. I'm ready for it. I saved more pucks than anyone in the history of the franchise, just 30 shy of 14,000 for my career. All right. So this is basically the longest running goaltender for the Red Wings. I'm going to go with Jimmy Howard. That's correct. Yeah. Because uh, right, Osgood didn't face job. enough shots. That's a good one. Osgood was like the answer you want to say because yes, he played exactly. nine years, but those teams were too good. He, he only faced 20 shots well, a night. And Sawchuk <laughs> played a ton of games, but in an era where there were fewer shots. And we don't even know if they were all recorded. So your answer could, <laughs> could very well have been Sawchuk, but we don't even know if they captured everything. But it's a good test, Max. You, you brought out the big guns there. I was really glad you decided to double for that round because it was only ever possible to get two points. Like, there were right. so many multi-point answers. If you'd have doubled on championship teams, this, has been, this would have been over before the round even started. And, and that's honestly what I was thinking about doing until you kind of let slip. So you kind of baited me into going into the, the who am yeah, I. I was, getting my, I, could my, I was getting my McCarty's revenge. I was going to say, because if I could just, uh, if I could have run the whole who am I and taken my 10 points, I would have, but... Man, the championship teams is where the money's at. I know those teams backwards and forwards. So, well yep. played. Well played. you got to pull out what you can to keep it close. Yeah. Well, all right. In the end, you win by a score of 12 to 11. Well done. Uh, well played. And I, that was really fun. I I, uh, I really enjoyed putting that together. Yeah. You know, it's a good challenge also for those of you out there looking to, to reminisce on some of these teams and learn a little bit more information on some of these uh, random Red Wings facts that I've had stashed in my head for, a, you know, who knows how long they've been stuck there. So uh, lots of fun. See how much, how many you know and let us know if you were able to, to outscore Max or I um, with, our, with our questions. Yeah, let us know uh, if, if you were playing along at home. Maybe we should have said something like this at the beginning of the show. I don't know. But if you're playing along at home and you got, you uh, you know, you did really well, let us know how you did. And the highest number that I hear um, please be honest, but I'll, I'll find some kind of prize or something for you. I like it. Yeah. All right. All right. Sounds good. Shall we go to, uh, we do have some questions today. If, you, if you're down for that, I know we've already basically hit our hour, but it's all good. Let's take some questions. All right. Um, Tori Harrington asks, what is the ideal fourth line? Is it grinders, grit and penalty killers, young and sheltered players, power play specialists who don't need a lot of even strength time. What's kind of your ideal composition of a fourth line? Yeah, I mean, this is a great question, and you'll honestly see NHL GMs are super conflicted on what the ideal fourth line should look like. I think there's not one right answer here. I think ultimately it does need to fit a little bit to what you know the, the team needs. My personal belief is this is where you can kind of stash your, your higher-skilled players that maybe are not as sharp defensively, um, and you don't need them to see as much ice time, but you want to take advantage of their skills in, you know, ad, in certain scenarios. You know, a guy that I think of as a great example of this is a Thomas Vanek. Like, uh, by the end of his career, he was an outstanding 
passer, great playmaker, terrible defensive forward. So the more minutes he was out there, he was going to give up more than he gave you. But if you're able to to really shelter him and protect him and put him in these nice situations and then throw him out on the power play where he can use his vision uh, to create passing lanes, then you're going to get more than you give up with a guy like that. So my personal belief is kind of constructing a roster with those types of players on your fourth line, um, as well as using kind of the younger guys uh, who are on entry level contracts, maybe a little bit cheaper to, again, help you kind of manage your, your salary cap. But I, I do think the NHL should move away and, and Stanley Cup winning teams in particular should move away from the stereotypical uh, checking penalty killer that doesn't really offer you a lot, you know, offensively, because if, you know, coaches are tempted to match those guys against the other team's best lines, and what ends up happening is now those guys are playing 20 minutes, they're giving you nothing offensively, and they're just, they're trying to survive and keep their heads above water defensively. Yeah, I, I think I have kind of a boring or annoying take on this, but it, it just depends on like what you have, you know, like, at the end of the day, yes, you, at some point you are acquiring players um, to be in your fourth line. But I think if you're making a priority of like, you know, building your team around like, I mean, not around a fourth line, but like if you're thinking too much about your fourth line and roster construction, I think you can get into trouble with it. Like at the end of any given day, you look at like what a fourth line often looks like. Yeah, a lot of it is often it's your penalty killers and it's your kind of your grinders, your checkers, because you have those guys on your team. But when, like, Team Canada builds their Olympic roster, they still have all-stars on the fourth line. So it's not like there's something inherent about it being the fourth line that means it has to be a specific type of player, right? Like, um, I I think if, if we're using the definition of fourth line as being, like, the guys who get the fewest minutes then yeah, I think that makes it on most teams the natural place to put your penalty killers and your young players who are breaking into the league, like like I'm talking very young, not like your 22, 23-year-olds, but like your 20, 21-year-olds. Um, I think it's natural because you can bring them along slowly, they can get some ice time, and then as as they seem comfortable and like they're not going to make huge mistakes, then you quickly move them up so they can play with the kind of skilled players who will get the most out of them. Um you know, like Michael Rasmussen was a perfect example of this a couple years ago playing on essentially the fourth line. He was kind of learning what the NHL was like. So I think it was the right call to have him on the fourth line. Um, but if Michael Rasmussen's on the team next year, you know, I, I think it would be a mistake to play him more than like a third to a half of the season on the fourth line if you can avoid it when, you can, when you're able to kind of play him in more, um, you know, with more skilled players, even though he does project as the kind of tough, physical, strong defensive player. Like, I think you ideally want him more on the third line where, you know, one of his great traits is playing at the net front. In order for that to be an advantage at all, you have to have him playing with someone who's going to get the puck to the net, someone else who's going to get the puck to the net, right? So um, it, it depends on what you have, though, right? Like on the Red Wings, I would say your best fourth line right now is it's a place to put someone like Franz Nielsen. Um, it's a place that you can put someone like Evgeny Svechnikov next year or Giovanni Smith as they're kind of breaking into the league. Um, and it's a great spot to put one of Darren Helm or Luke Lindenning, who are kind of your prime penalty killers. The other one probably is going on the third line um, to play kind of a, it, it is kind of, I guess, a checking role, but also a four-checking role. And I think that gets forgotten when people talk about grinders is they're not just defensive checkers, they're four-checkers too. And, and you need that. You need guys who can go win the puck. So it depends on your roster is the boring answer, but I think in some composition, those are the types of players you want. And I don't think it's all one uh, and and I certainly don't think it's all uniform across all teams. Yeah, I mean, all teams can't go uniform, you know, as of 
right. you know, right now, just because you, there's not that kind of distribution of skill. But, I mean, if you're thinking about a team like St. Louis, which has done a really good job, I mean, they've got guys like Ivan Barbashev, Oscar Sundquist on their bottom line where these are players right. that are a little bit more talented than your typical fourth-line player, but they're able to trot those guys out. I mean, even guys like Rob Thomas and, and Sammy Blase and Jordan Cairo have even worked their way up um, over the last couple of years, like as they're getting more time in St. Louis. And those are those 20, 21, 22-year-olds like you're talking about, Max, that, uh, you know, that's a perfect spot to kind of break them in and build them up as they as they start growing. Yeah, and you think about, like, let's say everything goes absolutely perfect for the Red Wings over the next two, three years, and they win the lottery and they get Alexi Lafreniere, right? Then you're looking at lines where it's like Larkin, Lafreniere, Mantha, uh, Zadina, Valeno, Bertuzzi, um, who am I missing here? Phil, I guess, I guess Philpola's contract will be up after a year. Uh, Rasmussen, Fabry, Jonathan Bergeron hits. Then your fourth line might be something like Robert Mastro, Simone, and uh, who else am I missing here on the wings? Giovanni Smith. Uh, yeah, I mean Bergeron. Right. Well, Bergeron, I put on the third line. There. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, so, but a guy like Giovanni Smith's, a, you know, a great player to play there. Svechnikov's right. still around. He's another guy that can play there. So. Right. But like a Robert Mastro Simone, I wouldn't say he's like what you would call a fourth line player. I think he's like a middle six player. Uh, but if if you have enough talent where you can put him on the fourth line, that's awesome. That's the dream. You want to be the Olympic team that's rolling out like, you know, whoever whoever Canada's fourth line center is in the Olympics. What's it? It's like Ryan O'Reilly or something. You know, like they're they're all stars. You know, they're Selkie winners. Whatever. That's great. You want to be in that position. You're just almost never going to be as an NHL team. So then it's about you know who do you want to have your fourth line minutes, and I think that is kind of the what the determining factor. What your roster yep. is and who you want to have the minutes. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, Eric Clinton says, is there any scenario you can see where the Red Wings draft draft Jamie Drysdale? It seems like a no-brainer to him that they need to grab a forward, but he's curious on our thoughts on that subject. Um, I mean, it's hard to say. Like, I don't – There's cert- it's certainly in the realm of possibility, right? Like, he's a, he's a very talented defenseman. He's the most talented defenseman in this draft. You know, if the team feels that that's the need – uh, and they, he's the best player on their board, then yeah, that's a scenario where they're going to take him. I think more realistically, um, the scenario where I envision them doing that is if hypothetically the NHL decides that we're going to stick with the, the same format, Detroit picks fourth, you're sitting at four, and potentially the, the one, two, three guys go off of Detroit's board, and they don't necessarily see a huge difference between a Drysdale um, and potentially the guy they have at number four on their board. And so maybe one thing they consider doing is they consider trying to trade back a couple of spots because again, you know, as you and I have talked about Max, uh, a lot of the players in that four through nine range are relatively comparable to each other uh, such that I don't think there's a huge difference. And if there is a team willing to, you know, pay the price, whether it's a a Montreal, a Buffalo, a New Jersey, or a, a Chicago that, that wants to try and jump up behind Detroit, um, then yeah, maybe you trade down and you end up with Jamie Drysdale anyways. But I don't think Detroit outright keeps their pick and picks Drysdale, but you never know what their board looks like. I tend to agree, but I also think, like, what I think the, the real enticing idea there is the Kings are a team that really needs um, defensemen. And so if you're picking at four and the Kings are at, let's say, six, 
that seems to me like almost a prime trade down scenario where you're going to move back two spots. You've got a bunch of guys in that tier who, you know, you and I think are all pretty close. So let's say, you know, it, it the draft starts and it's like Ottawa picking at one of the spots and two teams have moved up, you know, New Jersey and somebody, you know, whatever, Anaheim. Um, and then the Red Wings are at four and then it's the other Ottawa pick in Los Angeles. Uh, I think you're. I think you'd be fine to move back two spots there, pick up another pick. I think LA's got some pretty good draft capital. They've also got some pretty good prospects. Um, so that is a scenario where I think you would the the the, the best scenario at that point would be moving back, uh, so someone else can move up and trade uh, take Drysdale. But I will say I don't think it would stun me if the Red Wings sat there and took Drysdale. He's a really good player. Iserman, um invested heavily in defensemen in last year's draft. Uh, and so to me, that says that they think that there's like a, a, a real, I mean, I know it's probably not drafting for need, but there's a real value to stocking up on your defensemen through the draft. They're hard to find and Drysdale, you know, projects as kind of a top pair defenseman. I don't think you can ever, you know, look that in the face and say, no, I don't need it, you know? So, uh, it would not stun me, but I just think that, you know, especially when you consider that next year's draft is, is very defense heavy at the top. Uh, I think a forward is more likely. Yeah, I, I agree. Like I said, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. It's just it'll be a, it'll be a tough decision, and I think a trade back scenario is what makes it more of a reality. Yep, yep, yep. I agree. All right, uh, Austin Johansson says hypothetically, which of these scenarios would be most beneficial to the Red Wings? Larkin becoming a perennial Selkie candidate, Mantha becoming a perennial Rocket Richard candidate, Cider becoming a perennial Norris candidate, or uh, someone like Lafreniere becoming a perennial Art Ross candidate. And he put Lafreniere in parentheses with a question mark. So I assume he means just like some one of the other topics, whether it, I mean, who knows? It could be Zadina. It could be whoever they take in the first round this year, but just like getting a perennial Art Ross uh, as the alternative there. Yeah, I mean, from my standpoint, it's it's sort of tough. I think when you view this question, um, obviously two-way play is, is huge. A lot more than points matters. So it's really important that the player... Uh, not only scores, but also provides you uh, with good overall hockey in both directions. And so Larkin being a Selkie candidate is obviously a a perfect situation that if he's going to maintain his scoring pace where he's at right now, while also being recognized as one of the best defensive forwards in the league, I think that's huge. There's very few players like that. I mean, you're talking about Ryan O'Reilly, Stanley Cup champion, uh, Patrice Bergeron, Stanley Cup champion, and there's not really a whole lot of other ones that are in the center position, and the Wings have been missing that since Henrik Zetterberg and, and Pavel Datsuk, um, you know, have since uh, retired and left. So uh, I think that's a huge development for Detroit because right now they are kind of missing that elite two-way kind of center that can do all of that. I think obviously Mantha being a Rocket Richard candidate is is huge if that's a possibility. Um, he's already a great two-way player at the wing. Sider being a Norris candidate would be huge for the Wings just where they're at because of uh, kind of the lack of top-end defensive prospects. Um, And then, obviously, if you bring in a guy like Lafreniere, I think that completely changes the game. But at the end of the day, I think you need multiple guys that can be uh, in contention for their their respective awards at their position. Yeah. Um, All right, so my take on this is I look at the question and I think what is – what what would you like to kind of guarantee here? Um, and so 
kind of incumbent in that is like, I already think Dylan Larkin is going to be a perennial Selkie candidate within a couple of years. I mean, it was, it was hard, I think, to get any momentum on a team as bad as they were this year. But when you look at the underlying numbers, especially kind of midway through the year, you know, I don't know how it would have worked with Selkie wise, just because the, the team was bad. You know, there were goals going in the net and all that stuff. I thought his defensive play was really, really good this year. And maybe not like Selkie winner level, but I think like, I think it was kind of like showing that that is his future is that to a guy who's going to be able to play at that level. So I take that almost as like, I'm going to take that one off the table. Cause I already think he's going to be someone who's going to get Selkie votes many, many years in his career. Um, it, you know, who knows if they win or if he wins, but you know what I mean? Um, the, the rocket Richard one, I think is, you know, that tells you he's like a perennial 40 to 50 goal scorer. That's a pretty big deal. But again, like I already think he's in the thirties. So do you want to take that 20, that bump in the twenties? Um, cider, I think the, the Norris is more compelling to me because it, he's still a bit of a unknown at the NHL level, though. I do think he's going to be a rock, a Norris based on how the Norris voting goes tends to mean there's a lot of offense there too. So that tells me like, okay, if you're going to guarantee more at cider is going to be like an Alex Petrangelo type, um, or even, you know, on the upside of that, like a Victor Hedman, that's a game changer. And the same deal for the Art Ross, because that's taking a complete unknown where it's not a player like Larkin or Mantha, where I think you can always kind of safely project that they're going to be, if not, you know, that, that level, I don't think Mantha's a Rocket Richard winner, um, in his career, but you know, he, I'm not saying it's impossible either. Like there were times this season where he scores like it. There have been many times in his career where he scored like someone who, if they stayed, you know, healthy and consistent, it could happen. And I think same for Larkin on Selkie. So I would narrow it down to one of those two, either Cider as, as a Norris or, uh, or, uh, you know, an undefined player being the Art Ross. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, if you frame it that way, I think Cider being the Norris player is probably the biggest biggest new thing that then solidifies the Red Wings, you know, rebuild plan because you're still getting a top four pick, still adding a guy like that. You still have the development kind of plans of of Larkin and Mantha and, and those guys. But really Cider being a Norris player is the the biggest unknown uh I think we're out there right now. Yeah. Yeah. So that would I think that that's the way I'm leaning to, but I think when you factor in the fact that you don't even know where the rubbings are gonna pick in this draft, um, so I mean having an Art Ross winner is obviously a game changer. Those guys are always some of the very best players in the league. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. How many more of these do you want to do? We have a lot today, so we can bank some for next time. Uh however many you want to get to, Max. All right, let's do two more. Um the first one is from Cody and it's kind of a long one Cody Stark redraft the last 10 years of Red Wings first and second round picks pick and say the same if you liked it or change to someone else who went after a said pick yeah I mean last 10 years uh has been miserable for Detroit from a drafting standpoint and again a lot of that has to do with kind of where the the Red Wings picked over the years um you know it's not necessarily the best situation uh, always particularly in the early parts of the 2010s like there wasn't a lot but if you want to go back to and just kind of start at 2010 uh, and if you're looking at a redraft right there obviously in 2010 the wings take Riley Shahan at, at 21st overall uh, you know three picks after that you have Kevin Hayes go outstanding forward uh, a couple picks after off. that Right, you have you know Evgeny Kuznetsov, and then at the end of the first round, you obviously have Brock Nelson. So you know there's some huge misses there. Justin Falk goes later. Tyler Toffoli goes later. 
um, you know, in the second round there. So I think obviously the first guy I'm looking at over here is probably Kevin Hayes. I think he he does a little bit more for you um, from a two-way standpoint compared to Kuznetsov. Kuznetsov is obviously really, really talented, scores a lot, but I think I'd probably take Kevin Hayes, um, you know, from this draft here. Uh, and then if you're looking, I think that year, if you're looking at the Red Wings' second-round pick, um, I think they take Kelly uh, Yarncrock at 51st overall, who, um, to be quite honest, not a bad player to take at 51st overall. Um, but again, the the real big miss here is that, you know, Mark Stone obviously goes 178. I don't think anyone knew that no. he was going to go that late or be in that realm. But maybe John Klingberg's a more reasonable one who goes 131st. Yep, 59th. Jason Sucker is 59th. He's a little bit closer there. Uh, Radko Gudis is, is 66th. But, you know, Cali Yarncrack's not a bad pick there relative to, to what else ended up going uh, Brian Rust is another guy who's in there as well that you could consider. Nick Bustad, um, no, sorry, Bustad's a 19th, not a not second round. So I think that's kind of how I think about 2010. 2011's also, yeah. you know, a challenge. Yeah, you didn't have a first, right? You don't have a first here, but you still take Thomas Jerko, who again I think at the time most of us thought he was uh, going to be a really good player, he was an insanely talented player. But two picks later, there goes Boone Jenner. And so you, you kind of think about it, and that's rough. And a few picks after that, there goes Brandon Saad. Uh, John and, Gibson. Right, John Gibson. And the Wings actually had three second-round picks, and they went Thomas Yurko, Xavier Roulette, and Ryan Spruill. And so when you're missing names like you know Kucherov. Brandon Saad, Kucherov, um, you know, William Carlson, John Gibson, that was a big kind of swing and a miss for them there. Let's uh, Let's just... I don't know if I want to go through all 10 of these. We, yeah, uh, I mean, it's it, basically, I think you can sum up moral of the story is the Wings had a lot of swings and misses in the in the early parts of the 2010s, then swung and missed as their picks started to move up a little bit more in 16 and 17, or really 15, 16, 17. And ultimately, that's kind of why they're where they're at now. And I think you could go through every draft and ultimately find guys that the Wings should have taken but again, hindsight's twenty twenty here. I'm not ready to write off sixteen yet. Sixteen, they got Chalowski and Hironik, and I know you know Chalowski had a had a rough year. But if you end up with two guys who play in your top, I don't know. Let's say Chalowski's a four five, play in your top, you know, five defensemen in one draft class. I still think that's a good draft. Yeah, I think it'll always I know come the attached. Chikrin thing happened, right? But. It'll always come attached to the Chikrin thing, and it'll also come attached to the fact that like. You know, Sam Gerrard goes at the end of the second round, and and he was a guy that really had first-round talent, I think, and and could have gone in the first round. Obviously, Adam Fox goes later, um, you know, at the top of the third round. And so there are a lot of other defensemen that were missed uh, in this class as well. Yeah. Yep. All right, so then we'll just go to the last one um, from Kyle. And, And before I do we should clarify whenever we go through like old drafts like this, like they're not, people seem to take them as criticism or like we're saying that, you know, they should have known this and all this stuff. It's not really what we're saying. You can look in hindsight. I think it's fun for people to kind of daydream. And, and sometimes there are legit misses that, you know, look what was available one or two picks later, you know, who knows what happened, but we're not saying, you know, oh, like who, you know, how could they have not have understood this at the time? Because drafting is incredibly hard and there's in- incredibly small margins uh, on draft day that can grow to be massive uh, years later. So we're not 
sitting here from, you know, 10, 10 years hindsight saying what idiots could possibly have taken, you know, Riley Shea and over whoever, all those names we listed. It's, it's just looking back and, and seeing, you know, who else was on the board. And I do think it goes to show too, you know, there, there's not a ton of players in every draft who end up being um, incredible players. It's not like there's four, five, six rounds deep of superstars, uh, but it does show you how you can find a superstar in in late in the second round in all, in like almost every draft. And I think that's a, an interesting point to note too in a draft. The Red Wings have three second round picks. Yeah, I mean, basically that's why the the mantra has always been: give yourself as many shots at the dartboard because. Right. There, there are gems really all the way throughout. All right. And then last one, um, Kyle wants to know what term and value would you define as a win for the Red Wings when it comes to signing Anthony Mantha and Tyler Bertuzzi this summer? Both of them are RFAs. Yeah, I think term for Mantha is you get seven or eight. I think yeah. that's a win. Um, and then if you get them under seven million, I think that's a huge win um, for Detroit. And I think Bertuzzi, I don't know that I'd quite stretch him into the seven, eight territory, but I think, you know, five, six would be a good win for Detroit if he's willing to kind of take that intermediate term deal. And then I think for him, if you get him under, um, like under 5 million, really under 4.75, I think you did, uh, did a really solid job. Yeah. Um, and this is a tough one because we don't know what the cap is going to be, right? Like, and there was a I just time. am presuming it's the same. So yeah, because... so if it's if it's eighty one five, I guess yeah, is that what it is? Yeah. So yeah, if it's eighty one five, I think it's a little lower than what I might have even been expecting a couple months ago, where I thought Mantha's deal probably was going to stretch into the into the high sevens even potentially. Um, but if it stays the same, I think if you can get Mantha. I definitely think you don't want to go any lower than like six years with him. I, I I think he's hitting his stride and I know that, you know, if you want, I guess if you want to go five, that's fine, but don't let him go to free agency before you've really even opened your window, right? Like if we don't think the Red Wings are going to open their contention window for another, what do we think? Three years minimum. I guess it depends what happens. Yeah. In the draft at least lotteries. three years. Then like, you know, why put yourself in a position where, you know, you're going to have Anthony Mantha coming off the books right after at the same around the same time this year's first round picks w- will be right and potentially right as you're starting to get good. So, I think he's shown a lot. I think you sign him for six, seven, or eight years, and I think if you if the cap is flat, you want to do it right around seven. And if it goes up, I think you can go up to like seven point five and have that be fine. I mean, by I forget what it was when I did the story about what their next contracts. Um, looked like, but I know for sure Dom's model has Mantha generating well above that. I think he has him generating like over $9 million of like value a year, just to give yeah. you kind of a, a frame of reference. So no, you don't want to sign him for $9 million a year because one of the advantages of drafting a guy and having him be an RFA in your system is that you don't have to pay kind of quote-unquote market value. But if, if Dom has him generating $9 million a year of value and you sign him for like seven point nine. I don't think that means you've had a disastrous outcome. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. And I, I think, again, you know, the biggest thing for Mantha is going to be getting him to that term that you... For sure. Um, and, you know, you shouldn't be worried about the injuries with him. I think you just got to go for it here. Yeah. So so what would be a win? I agree. I think it's like anything in the low sevens or below seven for a long-term deal. Yeah, agree. But what's, but what's palatable is even bigger than that. Like you can still go bigger and have it be like, yeah, okay, you know? Yeah, and he'll be um, the highest paid player on the team, and that's fine. Right, and Bertuzzi on that same front. Um, and although I will say, I do think th- this being these being Eiserman's kind of first big negotiations as Red Wings GM 
makes for a very interesting backdrop. Like, presumably you you think he's going to want to establish some kind of, you know, the old uh, not-so-hard hard cap or, or kind of like a standard of what, you know, what it means to, to sign an extension, right? Like, I, I assume, isn't, I mean, in, in Tampa the cap deals are are all lower than what you would kind of project for those guys on the open market, right down to Kucherov, yeah. who's their highest paid player at like nine and a half million. He could be more than a $10 million player. He's got a heart trophy. Um, so I do wonder how that affects things. Like, does that, does that keep things down a little bit maybe from, you know, where we're thinking? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, uh, that's probably why you want to say, you know, I think right now you have to project it as if, this is a neutral GM coming in and doing it, but I think Eiserman gets you numbers that are lower than this. He certainly seems to have so far, but we don't know how things like Florida's income tax situation play into that. And, you know, there are factors there that are beyond just his negotiation style or the, or the culture. Like there are many factors at play. Um, on to Bertuzzi, Dom has his market value at like six. So yeah, I, I would tend to agree. You want that in the fives. Um, and if you get it below five, it's a win. Yep. Yeah, and I agree. Midterm, five, five, six years. Um, all right, I think that's going to do it for us. Thank you guys very much for listening. I know we went a little longer today, but we really appreciate you tuning in. Hopefully, you enjoyed the trivia, and hopefully, you are uh, still supporting your local businesses and restaurants. Make sure you get some takeout this weekend, and uh, make sure you tune back in early next week when we return for our next episode. Stay on uh, on draft alert, though. I know I don't need to tell you guys to do that. Take care. <laughs>